You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome back to episode 61 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. We broadcast on Middle Earth Network Radio as well as the Star Wars Report website. Our episodes are also available on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. But enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, Mark Herleman. And with me, like the Death Watch, hiding in wait to strike against their pacifistic oppressors, the EU guru himself, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hello, everyone. Uh, dipping back into the Clone Wars this time around for more chaos, pretty much. The chaos indeed. Uh, you know, it was funny when we did the first one of these, I realized that I actually caught a lot more of the first two seasons than I had originally realized. I thought I'd missed most of it and came in in season three, but actually I came in, in the late half of season two. That has to be that whole mid-season jump that they do that makes each season feel like it's actually two seasons. Because I definitely thought I was closer to being into season four when I started following, but really it was the second half of season two. Well, that means then you got to see the actual stuff that was produced, uh, I guess, during season two for season two. Because what they tend to do is they'll produce, like, for instance, say season three is actually about half stuff that was produced as part of the season two episode production. And the back half is the first half of the season three production with the first half of season four being the back half of season three. Like, they're always a half a season ahead in production compared to what we're seeing on television. So you got the stuff that actually was, you know, the later production run, once they got a chance to, to up their game a little bit and up the character models a little bit and whatnot, which uh-huh. is good, I would think. You know, this is also the time when there was the uh, the travesty of Karen Travis leaving Star Wars Expanded Universe with the eye on the Mandalorian prize and what was going on in the Clone Wars. You know, we'd had the Ryloth stuff going on and the potential continuity errors that may or may not have came up with that. Uh, and that was, I think, you know, that was for me the, the main thing of like, okay, I better really start paying attention to what's going on in this series because obviously it's going to start affecting my EU. And so I better be paying attention to what's going on. And so that was when I really started focusing in on, you know, the details. Because before that, it was the wait till it gets on DVD approach as I did with the Gendy series. But that's not what I got. But uh, here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, as you know, is looking at Season 2 of the Clone Wars animated series. Consider this your spoiler warning, boys, girls, fans of all ages, because here we go. That's right, and Season 2 is the one where, uh, I guess if the concept was the continuity issue with Season 1, just the idea of having Anakin be knighted already instead of it being about six months before Revenge of the Sith, and having Ahsoka be there at all when she didn't previously exist in the continuity. So the question of what do we do about her, how do they write her out of the show, why isn't she ever mentioned, etc., etc. That was all very conceptual stuff. This is a season where there's starting to be a lot of outcry, Uh, less about the concept. People are sort of used to the idea of Ahsoka now and such, but more in terms of very specific things 
that fundamentally altered aspects of certain EU characters or EU situations. You mentioned the Mandalorians, but this is also the season that, of course, brought us things like Eeth um, Koth being alive when he should have been dead, uh, Barris Alfie's age apparently being very different than what we saw even in the films themselves, and, of course, Boba Fett coming in and his relationship to other characters, Aura Singh, and whether she's Force-sensitive or not. All kinds of stuff started to get worked in here that showed that I guess Lucas really has a very different vision in some respects than what we see in the EU, and that previously existing EU stuff, while sometimes referenced, was not even remotely going to be a restraint on the series. This is where that was much more in your face than I think in season one, because I, I think people were able to mentally separate the idea of the show concept from specific storyline changes. I mean, yes, if the concept has Ahsoka in it, Fine, that's just kind of the concept of the whole thing. we got to deal with it because it affects the entire series. But individual storylines now are going to start tweaking it a little bit more uh, overtly in this season. Well, and, and now you got the, the G-level treatment. Yeah, it was, it was a T-level canon that was introduced, but that was more for the tracking side of things. This got the full G-Lucas treatment. Like, Lucas is doing this, so we got to take it. And so there was that aspect of... Okay, well, if Lucas is willing to, like with Barris, change the ages of characters from his own films, you know, again, it, it set that precedent that nothing is really sacred in Star Wars. There is a very flexible canon. And, you know, yeah, when we get, yeah, I, I remember this was the rise of the bounty hunters. And then, you know, it, it seemed like when the season was over, you're like, really? Rise of the bounty hunters? Like, they should have called it Rise of the Mandalorians. But it gets back to that whole, you know, the two parts of the season. They were marketing the first half. And I remember when they when they said all this stuff on Sing, they were very, I, I thought at the time, very EU-friendly in the aspect of saying, while she won't be Force-sensitive in the TV show, we are not going to full-on say she is no longer Force-sensitive. You just won't be seeing her use the Force or any reference to her using the Force in the TV show. And that was that was as far as they went. And I love that. I thought that was a great way of saying that, you know, what came before is still there. You're just not going to be seeing her, and that's the why. Uh, you know, unlike with, as I always throw out there, the R8 droid of Maces, where that model wasn't even there, and they could have just said, well, it's a serial number, like they've said for countless years, but instead they go, oh, it's a model number, it's always been there. No! But I like the way they did it with Sing. They, they, I thought that was a very classic way of keeping what was there while doing a new version of George's vision. Yeah, at least left the possibility there, although that, of course, now is causing a lot of people, we're, uh, uh, this episode will be released the day before we see the last episode on television of season five. And there's a lot of people wondering whether or not uh, Aura Singh could perhaps be the mysterious female who uh, has apparently set Ahsoka up in that season. Uh, I'm not buying it, but it's that whole, well, she appears to be Force-sensitive in the show, that whoever this mysterious person is, so, well... If they left the door open that Aura Singh could be Force-sensitive, then it could be her. I mean, I would argue no, not to mention the fact that I'm not sure how her little antenna fits under the uh, helmet she stole from Massage. But that's getting, I guess, a couple <laughs> seasons ahead. Um, we actually start the season, of course, with the Cad Bane-centric episodes that actually take place prior to Hostage Crisis, the season finale of season one, in fact, quite a bit prior to that, which were Holocron Heist, Cargo of Doom, and Children of the Force which, of course, introduced us to, among other things, Mustafar as a secret place for Sith training to be taking place. We got to see uh, Cad Bane and some of his first interactions with any of our major characters. We got ourselves uh, Kato Parasiti, a Claudite character, and really just got a chance to see 
uh, a little bit more about how the Jedi keep track of Force-sensitive people around the galaxy and how they find them for training, um, how they are approached, how they catalog this, with, of course, the Kyber Crystal concept coming back. The Kyber Crystal being something from an early draft of the Star Wars film uh, that would have been a way to channel the Force, which then got worked in in a different sort of concept a little bit for Splinter of the Mind's Eye, which was then put back into K-Y-B-E-R spelling instead of K-A-I-B-U-R-R for the Kyber Dart in Episode 2, which got changed to Saber Dart for the final film, and now here's Kyber and Crystal back again as something that essentially unlocks a holocron, which we have been told in The Last Jedi recently, uh, the way they've sort of retconned to say that you need that kind of key is that some holocrons need a physical key along with the force connection to actually uh, unlock it by by touching whatever it is on the inside. So we got a chance to see holocrons show up and a lot of other angles to add to the mythology of this series. Though, I would imagine people were very confused when this was first aired, thinking, wait a second, didn't we just see Cad Bane with them? Why are they making no mention of the events of Hostage Crisis? Well, because they hadn't happened yet. Welcome to Continuity Shuffling. Yeah, that's when... Everyone starts to get completely confused. I liked the aspect of seeing the holocrons. I remember, though, that in the EU, the holocrons were very rare. And so it did make sense that they would have them out at the temple. But it seemed like there was a lot more than what I was thinking. Or, or at least the way that they went about it seemed a little more different, I guess, than what I originally had, uh, had interpreted the idea of what the holocrons would be. Um, I thought that was an interesting twist, though, and, and having CAD looking after it and the fact that they were storing some of the data on there that I, I really wouldn't expect them to put that kind of data on there. It's like, why would you be doing that? I, that just seems like, I don't know. To me, the Holocron has always been something that was Force-based. You know, it, it had the teachings of the Force and things like that. I didn't see, you know, any kind of data where you have the the missions the names of these people and, and that kind of stuff i i just didn't see them putting it on there so that was something that totally took me by surprise came out of co uh, total left field yeah it was an unusual thing i bet it's kind of cool to see them of course back in there it would have been nice if they had used a little bit more of the references to it uh in the behind the scenes stuff on the season two blu-ray set um just i guess before we get too far since this is a continuity jump i guess just to probably point out how this works um season one pretty much ends with the ryloth trilogy and then Hostage Crisis is kind of left dangling at something that takes place later. Then we get most of this season, albeit somewhat out of order, Holocron Heist, Cargo of Doom, and Children of the Force, then Bounty Hunters from later in the season, the Zillow Beast and the Zillow Beast Strikes Back, also from later in the season. Then we get what our next storyline is in the season in viewing order, Senate Spy Landing at Point Rain, Weapons Factory, Legacy of Terror, and Brain Invaders, followed by Grievous Intrigue, The Deserter, Lightsaber Lost, Death Trap, R2 Come Home, and Lethal Trackdown, and then... We work in episodes from, you know, as I didn't mention the Mandalorian ones there, we work in more episodes from Season 3, Sphere of Influence, uh, Arc Troopers. Then we get the Mandalore plot, Voyage of Temptation, and Duchess of Mandalore. And then we get Season 3's episodes, Corruption and the Academy on Mandalore, followed by, of course, Assassin. And then, and only then, do we finally get to the final trilogy of episodes for the pre-time jump stuff in the Clone Wars before they jump to an older Ahsoka closer to Revenge of the Sith, which are Evil Plans, Hostage Crisis, and Hunt for Zero. Notice nowhere in there did I mention Senate Murders from this season because Senate Murders is the only one produced prior to the time jump and viewed 
prior to the time jump that actually takes place after the time jump. We did just, just didn't know it at the time. This season is probably the most scrambled of any of the Clone Wars seasons that we get. Well, and this also, this is where they said, we're not going to do this again, folks. Calm down, right? Because this one got people really, really angry. Well, they did say that after the time jump happens in season three, from then on, episodes would be aired in the order in which they're supposed to take place. And they seem to have stuck to that with the exception of moving up Revival in season five. So they, they at least stuck to it somewhat. I can see why they would necessarily need to do it, you know, the whole idea of when they have the character models available and whatnot. But boy, was it confusing. And I'm glad the, the visual guide updated and expanded has given us that order that Leland Chi is now giving us that order, which is actually matching. Um, the only error was actually in the original list of episodes that Leland Chi sent me that I sent back a wait a second on through email must have been the same one that was given to uh, Ryder Wyndham for doing the Ultimate Visual Guide updated and expanded because it's the same error still in there, which is that in the Visual Guide, they've got the two sets of Mandalorian episodes in reverse order. The Season 2 ones have to be before the Season 3 ones because in Season 3 with Corruption, the reason why they're concerned about the Jedi like Ahsoka being on the planet is because of what happened during the previous Season 2 Mandalorian arc. So there's that error still there. Hopefully that'll be gone by the time they finally get everything up on Leland Chi's post on the Star Wars blog so that it's also an error that's not there when uh, uh, Jason Fry puts out his new episode guidebook. But we do get... One of the most interesting twists on this season, of course, next, which is that we get a five-episode arc here. We get Senate Spy, in which, of course, we meet Rush Clovis, a former flame of Padme, and during which they find out about a weapons factory on Geonosis. We then get Landing at Point Rain, sort of a second battle of Geonosis, where they're going after the weapons factory, and it mainly focuses on our major characters. Um... We get Weapons Factory, which then, still on Genosis, focuses down to Barris Ophi, a somehow younger, not as old as Anakin anymore, Barris, it seems, um, alongside Ahsoka. Then Legacy of Terror takes us down into sort of the zombie-type situation where we've got uh, uh, mostly fighting underground or in the caves of Geonosis, followed by the continuation of that with the little uh, worm zombie maker creatures uh, in brain invaders. I was very impressed by the fact that they did decide that they weren't just going to stick these in two or three episode storylines. They were actually going to go kind of balls to the wall and do five episodes as one story, which I'm having a hard time remembering if we've ever seen anything else that long since. So I think this may be the longest single story arc we ever got in Clone Wars. Yeah, I think four is as high as it goes beyond that. And, And that was one of the cool things. I think when I remember watching it, though, I did not realize that Senate Spy played as directly into Landing at Point Rain. Like, I remember it being Landing at Point Rain, Weapons Factory, Legacy of Terran Brain Invaders. Like, I, I totally, I don't know, maybe it was just the Senate aspect. I just, I don't like the Senate stuff. It kind of bores me. And that's been a generalized thing. I mean, all the, throughout the EU, Leia, when she's doing her stuff, I'm like, oh, okay, let's get back to the action. So when they started training her as a Jedi, I was like, yes, now here's a Leia I can get behind. But Landing at Point Rain, I for me that was the pinnacle episode. I want to say up until the Night Sisters arc, and then later, you know, the the stuff we just recently got with the Maldalorians and all that awesomeness. But Landing at Point Rain was Clone Wars action at its best. The modeling was at a point where you could tell that they were at that stride. You know, I mean, it was like now we're there. This is what we've been being promised. 
and from here on out, the ride's going to get good. And and it really did. I mean, I really enjoyed that arc. You know, it was, one, like I said, one of my favorite arcs. I liked it. Uh, we always give Barrent a lot of, of crap on Republic Forces Radio Network because he is a huge fan of Senate Spy. And a lot of us were not that fond of it. I think looking at it as sort of the lead-in, a prologue to the other stuff that we get with these other four episodes, I think it works. Uh, and I was actually kind of shocked to see that the Rush Clovis episodes for Season 5 got pushed back into Season 6. I like the fact that we got a chance to see Anakin in sort of his jealous mode, because there's always this relationship and this marriage between him and Padme going on in the background, but rarely do we actually get a chance to see it. We commented on that with Hostage Crisis. This was a good chance to see that. Um, Landing at Point Rain, Weapons Factory, great action episodes. Uh, I really like the whole brainworm kind of almost uh, uh, sticking the city creature into your ear to make you into a Wrath of Khan baddie type thing going on with them. Although, I think at this point, I was really burning out on Star Wars and zombies because the first episode of this arc, uh, Senate Spy, aired on October 16th, day before my birthday, of 2009. And granted, we didn't get Legacy of Terror with the actual brain worms until November 20th. But only three days before Senate Spy aired, we got Death Troopers in novel form. And they had been hyping the living crap out of that for a while and doing all those oh, little, yeah. uh, uh, the fan online videos. journal entries and stuff, the fan videos. So part of me sits back, sat back at the time and said, you know what, this is cool and all, but it almost feels like Star Wars is overloading on a bandwagon at the time. Looking back on it, taking the, the release date context out of it, I really do enjoy the episodes. I just, at the mm -hmm. time, I was enjoying them, but at the same time going, okay... We can get off the bandwagon now. Yes, zombies well, are cool now. Can we get back to the Star Wars stuff? I was I was a little bit torn on those episodes because I, it felt gimmicky. I know you weren't alone. I mean, I didn't feel that way, but I did see a lot of outcry like, whoa, what's with the zombie saturation here? Come on, this is Star Wars, not Walking Dead. And yet, I really enjoyed the concept of how the Brain Invaders was used. I mean, we had zombies, but not. I mean, there was the aspect of, were they grubs? You know, I mean, because the Geonosians are all bugs. So were these grubs that were in them? And these were just baby Geonosians kind of taking over the dead bodies? It's just like part of the natural process. I, that was a very intriguing from a looking at their society, the Geonosian society. That was a very dark twist to that species that I did not see coming at all. So for that side of it, I really enjoyed it. I mean, because it was, yeah, it was, it was zombies. But it was definitely unprecedented version of zombies. It was something that I hadn't seen really before. And so I, I really liked it. But yeah, there was there was a definite outcry for oversaturation. You had the fan videos going on, the really cool purge letter, the tr uh, all those little letters that came out that were uh, what on like six or seven different sites at the time spread out. There was a lot of really cool – you had all the uh, little – free chapters of death troopers that were going on. And a lot of people were saying, Hey, you're giving us too much. There was a lot of too much at that time. So, so that feeling, you know, you coming away with that. I, I could totally understand that because there was an oversaturation of the zombie theme right then and there, because it was busting into star Wars and it had been approved. Yeah. And I mean, it's not something that's necessarily bad. It's just, it's an unusual thing to have it all happening all at once. It's kind of like, you know, what happens right before they release the Phantom Menace in theaters in 3d, lots and lots of new mall stuff. Uh, and, yeah. and of course, that's you look tied back into on Maul's... it now, and you're like, that's well, not so bad, right? right? But it's all tied into Maul's time in the Clone Wars as well. So I mean, it's it's one of those things where Star Wars gets kind of fixated on one thing. Like now, 
I know I don't collect the Star Wars toys or anything like that anymore, but I'll tend to walk through the aisle, the toy aisle, just to see what's new. And aside from fighter pods and Angry Birds Star Wars, it's almost impossible to find anything Star Wars toy-wise in the area that I'm in. Um, because Dude. that's what Star Wars is fixated on right now in terms of toy marketing, which I guess is similar to the whole thing here. There's one thing they fixate on, and then everything has to revolve around it in some form or another, or most things. Side note on that, because I, I, that is an issue that drives me nuts at my Walmart. But I go over to the local uh, Toys R Us in Medford, and they have a Nominor. I'm like, oh, sweet! So I buy it. I come back, and I mean, I hit up the, the local Walmart before. Every day I go to the toy section. So I go through there on our way home. And what's this? A Nominor. There's a Barris Ophi. And there is a, uh, a Leah Secura and the Art Clone Commander. Uh, all the expanded universe versions and, and, and then the uh, the movie versions. But I was just like, oh my gosh. Like, these things are different. So I buy them up. And I come back the next day and there's another Nominor. I'm like, what in the heck is up with this? All of a sudden, these are moving. But of course, after that got bought up, it's right back to Nowheresville. It's like, come on, man. You know, we were talking last episode about how the Clone Wars has all these really great models that they could be using for toys and stuff. And I'm just, you know, recapping on these. There's just so many more models that they could have been doing in the past even that they weren't. It's like, I've seen like 108 versions of Anakin and Obi-Wan, but hardly any of the really cool models that we have seen in the Clone Wars show of them. I mean, there have been some, what, with them in the ice stuff? Haven't seen those anywhere. This, of course, moves us into the two-part arc, which, again, had significant continuity issues. I mean, the stuff with the, the, the Battle Geonosis or the Second Battle Geonosis and all that kind of stuff happening in the previous arc, I mean, that just added to the continuity for the most part. We had to see the Queen of the Geonosis. That added to the continuity. The only thing that really seemed like it was tweaked was Barriss's age, but she was technically still a Padawan early in the war. Um, granted, it did make it so that it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense for this stuff to now all take place after the uh, the presumed time jump. Uh, folks, during the first two seasons or so of The Clone Wars, the simplest solution that was being presented by fans and uh, that Leland Chi was sort of giving a nod to, though not necessarily saying it was official, he was just kind of saying, well, that does kind of make sense, um, would have been to take the Clone Wars continuity of the books and the novels and everything and split it at right after Dreadnoughts of Rindili. Anakin has just become a knight, Anakin has just gotten his scar, cut it there, squish everything up to that point, that two and a half years back, into a shorter amount of time after Attack of the Clones, take everything after that, the six months leading up to Revenge of the Sith, push that closer up to Revenge of the Sith, and slot the Clone Wars cartoon show into the middle of that gap. Um, but one of the things that makes that a little bit hinky is that we have Barris in that previous arc, who is still a Padawan, and if they did that whole parting the waters type of solution, she should already have been a knight by that point. Uh, or they'd have to remove the MedStar ending of the MedStar duology where she was knighted. Uh, I think now there's going to be even more issues with that now that we're seeing Barris show up again in the current uh, arc. And if she winds up having some role in anything that somehow removes her from this current arc, whether she's the traitor, whether she's uh, killed by the traitor to get at Ahsoka, or anything like that that could potentially remove her, then we got even bigger issues. So by introducing Barris as a friend of Ahsoka in this storyline uh, and making her seem like she is younger, I'm not sure if she's meant to be younger, but she certainly seems like it because she's a Padawan, not even close to a knight apparently. Um, th there are those levels at which that could cause uh, more consternation. But we did get more consternation immediately in Season 2 with that next duology, uh, Grievous Intrigue and The Deserter. I love the fact that Deserter gives us an idea of what happens when a clone gets stranded and decides to just live a different way. We've already seen 
uh, back in Rookies, the Traitor Clone. Uh, or not, uh, not Rookies. Uh, it was in, uh, what was it? The Hidden Enemy. Excuse me. Uh, we already saw in the Hidden Enemy that Traitor Clone. And here we have a clone who is essentially a deserter, not because he tried to, but because he just had no way to get back. And I like the fact that we get to see that, and it lets Rex kind of see what life could be if he wasn't fighting and whatnot. But of course, we start the episode with the need for the Jedi to rescue Jedi Master and Jedi Council member Eeth Koth, who, at least up to that point in the continuity, was dead. It was part of the way of making room for Aegon Kolar was to say that Eeth Koth was already dead, that he died in the Battle of Geonosis, according to uh, Inside the Worlds of Attack of the Clones back in 2003. Uh, apparently, what happened was that Dave Filoni wanted to use him, and they did run it by Leland Chi, and uh, Leland Chi and Pablo Hidalgo both um, said, well, he's dead, so you really can't use him. At which point, Filoni just turned to Lucas and said, can I please resurrect the character, and got the okay, and poof, all of a sudden, Eeth Koth is now alive again. Um, so presumably back in the, in the Tartakovsky series where they had, uh, Aegon Kolar, supposedly, but it looked like Eeth Koth, presumably that must be Eeth Koth again, for all we know. Um, <laughs> they resurrected the character and thereby undid a few things. Granted, it wasn't major continuity changes, but it was another of these instances of this in your face. Yes, we know what was done. We're going to do something different. And it wasn't a, uh, gee, they didn't know it kind of thing. Because they just hadn't read all the stuff. You know, we can't expect them to have read everything at that point. Um, but it was flat out a, they were told, this character is dead. And they said, not anymore, sucker. It's like more proof of canon melting down. It's like, you know, George created this back door in canon where you can retcon anything at any time. And, and canon is just going to always be fluid. And, and that's... I, I don't know. It seems to me like Star Wars is the only universe where that has happened. Where, where it's like other places you watch the production side of things do it, you know, like with Star Trek, where producers make these kind of decisions and botch things up because someone's not paying attention. But in this case, it's the actual creative vision. And that vision doesn't even know what it's always doing. I mean, again, Barris being the case here, you know, where you've got a human character that, that looks of a certain age. Now we've got her in another age. It's one of those things where it's always perplexed me. And to have East Cost, then have Aiden Kolar, and then go back again. You created Eden for a reason. Why not use him? I, I just I have never understood those kind of decisions. And I'll agree on that aspect of it. I mean, it's it's always sort of the nature of the beast. That people are playing in Lucas's sandbox. When you write for the expanded universe, you know that anything you do could theoretically be steamrolled by something that Lucas does. He is the master of G canon. The whole reason they created T canon was so there was something where people who were working with him, um, but directly influenced by him in large ways, uh, got their own sort of level of canon. And then, of course, we have the rest of the EU. I mean, heck, even. Uh, you know, the other cartoon series, Droids, Ewoks, the Tartakovsky Clone Wars micro series, they didn't get the T canon label. It only applies right now, at least, to the Clone Wars. So, of course, yes, it makes sense that he could go through and simply, uh, based on his own vision of what these characters would be, who's alive, who's not, what cultures are like what, um, he could certainly come in and change things. And it's simply the nature of the beast that the EU has to evolve with it. What gets me a little bit about the Clone Wars is the fact that he did have the Clone Wars off-limits, then allowed it, and then went ahead and went in and changed it. Um, and you're right, there are these odd situations where it almost seems like he's retconning 
himself. But of course, I mean, these certainly aren't the biggest examples of that. I mean, that, think of, yeah. of uh, Greedo shot, or Han shot first. No, Greedo shot first. No, actually yeah. shot at about the same time. No, he shot here. No, he shot a little bit over to the side. <laughs> um, uh, no, those rocks were always meant to hide R2-D2 and disappear in the other angle. Uh, Jabba's palace's gate was always meant to be huge when you're looking at it from the outside and tinier when you look at it from the inside. Don't you know that? The Blu-ray is just sticking with his vision from 1977. Yeah, um, his vision is fluid, like spittle. I mean, you know, I, I think about the thing about with Karen Travis, though, and her stepping away. It's like, did she kind of foresee what's happening to Reeves's works right now? And is that, I mean, granted, we've, we've talked about this and we know that there were other reasons, but there is that underlying bit of doubt that this is really why she stepped away. She just was like, okay, Reeves's stuff isn't going to last. My stuff couldn't possibly last. I mean, like the episode Deserter, it, it touched on themes that she herself had wrote into the Clone Commando novels, you know, and I love that, but I'm seeing that that Reeves, especially his work, seems to really be in that fluctuating sandbox of oh boy, and yet we're still making Reeves books set in this same era that's constantly shifting. So it's like, is there a plan somewhere? Or are we just saying out oh, of heck with it? Let's just make up stories as we go. Well, the Reeves stuff. I mean, Reeves stuff is kind of an unusual situation because you've got the focus on Barris. So if anything happens to her, it shifts stuff. Um, but that one, the Boda in MedStar makes a big difference in Coruscant Nights, of course. He botched his own dates like crazy, Michael Reeves did in the Coruscant Nights book, so that the, the, the ending of Patterns of Force, the third book, doesn't actually even make sense because it's supposed to have been a, a decade or more for the Boda to basically go bad when really it was a matter of months uh, or a year or so at most for it to have done so because he constantly got the dates of the prequels and his own books wrong. Um, but now we have The Last Jedi, which is interesting because it is making use of... Um, I mean, it's referencing back to those sorts of things from time to time, so you got to wonder how it's all going to wind up playing out uh, continuity-wise. But um, he is actually making use in The Last Jedi. I'll give them props. He and Maya Catherine Bonhoff this time uh, are managing to work in the aftermath on Mandalore from Season 5, like what the situation is there and the somewhat chaos that, that still exists and whatnot, oh. sort of filling in the gaps there. Um, but we'll get to, I guess, the Mandalore episodes uh, here in... A moment we can talk a little bit more about the effects it has on that. Uh, the next episode was actually an individual single story arc type of episode, which was lightsaber lost. Uh, Ahsoka gets uh, robbed of her lightsabers and has to, uh, with the help of Tara Sanube, uh, chase down the person, Cassie Cryer, who stole them, uh, her and her partner, so that she can, of course, get them back and uh, not violate the whole, you know, this weapon is your life kind of stuff so that uh, she doesn't look weak, so that she looks like she can handle her own business. It was nice to see her in what amounts to sort of an Ahsoka-centric episode and seeing some growth to her character here, although now, looking back on it, I have to laugh a little bit because having a lightsaber pickpocketed seems to be the one major thing that Ahsoka and Luke Skywalker, <clears throat> choices of one, uh, have in common. <laughs> we also had that uh, the feebly uh, old Jedi... What was it? Tara Sanub, I believe his Sanube, name was. Yeah. Sanube, yeah. And he was an odd one. I didn't really care for the character model, but I liked the character and I liked the idea of the character. You know, and I think the thing that really intrigued me the most was to see an elderly Jedi that was elderly as, as what we expect to see an elderly Jedi. I mean, we see an elderly Jedi all the time, but Yoda is not at all what you envision an elderly to be. I mean, yeah, Yoda 
walks with the cane and stuff, but not as much as as T- as Tara did. Tara was was definitely at the end of his life cycle, whereas Yoda, while old, still had some more decades to go. <laughs> and then, of course, we got the nuclear bomb of the season, uh, which was the three Mandalore episodes, which, of course, were pushed back uh, continuity-wise, so they now take place after pretty much all the rest of this season. Um, the Mandalore plot, Voyage of Temptation, and Duchess of Mandalore. And this introduced us, of course, to the idea that Mandalore, in Lucas's vision, has gone through a substantial change from what we have expected. Um, that uh, at some point, 700-plus years prior to uh, the films, we had the uh, basically a, a war between the Jedi and the Mandalorians. It wound up with Mandalore being decimated, uh, at least a big chunk of it being decimated. The capital is now Sundari, which is sort of this uh, city in the wasteland type of area that is closed off in and of itself. We have a new leader, uh, the Duchess Satine Cries. We have the fact that she leads a pacifist group that formed as a reaction to that devastation called the New Mandalorians. And uh, the other Mandalorians, the ones who stick to the warrior ways, have now essentially left, and they are the so-called true Mandalorians, of which Death Watch is the major faction on the moon of, of Mandalore called Concordia. And we, we have the continuity shuffling of saying, well, see, um, Jango Fett and all that stuff we got in the, uh, uh, the, the early uh, prequel era materials with Jango open as we led seasons. up to Attack of the Clones, like open seasons, yeah. Um, it's actually, they are part not so much of the Mandalorians running Mandalore, because that's the new Mandalorians. They are the true Mandalorians. So yes, there is a split between his faction and Death Watch with the other Vizsla, Tor Vizsla, but it's a, it's a split that is within the true Mandalorian. So at that point, there are actually three factions rather than just two, whether we're talking about new and true or uh, true and Death Watch. Um, Basically, which... the warriors were fighting over how their side was going to be led. Exactly, exactly. And of course, we get the other big shocker in here, uh, which is that Obi-Wan had a previous, not really relationship, but a love interest, so to speak, that he was never able to truly act upon in the form of Satine. We've got that great uh, line from Anakin about, uh, I'll take care of this, you go save your girlfriend. Anakin, she's not my, you know, and all that. At the time, what got me about it was the fact that, I mean, Siri was someone who was fresh in people's mind from the stuff that was released uh, around the time of Attack of Clones and then later. So we have this sense that there are several instances in which Obi-Wan has a friend who is so close of a friend who is a female that you get the sense there is a romantic tension there, which at the time I thought was a little bit frustrating. It was kind of a really, really Obi-Wan has one of these forbidden love type things going on too. He just didn't act on it. But the more I think about it, the more it's kind of interesting to see that because A, it gave us the great stuff in season five that lets you really see some devastation for Obi-Wan's character. But you have the fact that Obi-Wan is someone who, of all Jedi, might be somebody Anakin could actually have talked to about Padme in some form or another, who could have possibly been at least marginally sympathetic. But instead, Anakin goes a little too far, marries her rather than choosing the other path of not being with her, and that separates him from Obi-Wan in that experience. It makes them sort of foils for each other when it comes to how they deal with uh, attachments and whatnot. So that winds up playing out very well. But this was the this was the trilogy of episodes that freaked people out and still is probably the one with the biggest impact, even though they already had a retcon in the works 
uh, in the pages of the Essential Atlas that was uh, soon to be published, and I think it was soon to be published, it may have been right before this, um, and we now find as of Season 5 that the decks have somewhat been reset where it looks like beyond the cartoon series there may not be that much stuff that is truly shuffled in this case. We won't know, I guess, until the next time we see Mandalore in the cartoon series. Nissy, I want to I want to call Bullsith on the whole Obi Wan and and Satine's relationship. I truly believe that Obi Wan, at the point that he met her, where the relationship in question came to be, had learned that lesson. I really think that yes, she was infatuated with him, but he recognized it for what it was, and he played along only far enough to not hurt her feelings. I, I really think that everything else he said was a lie or from a certain point of view. Because not only did he have the Siri relationship, he had the relationship on Meladon where he almost left the Order as well. So, I mean, he's had a couple different run-ins when it comes to relationships, the Jedi Order, and their rules on such. So, that always stuck weird with me, but the way that that plot resolved itself. I was okay with it. I was like, all right, that works. I can see it in my light. They can go with the other light. They both work. The aspect of what they were doing with Mandalore being a complete and total wasteland didn't quite sit well with me. I, I, I still look at it as it was just the major chunk, like the, the main ancestral planes or whatever that they were using the most got wiped out in that battle. And so they put that new city, the pod city, the cube city, whatever they're going to, you know, technology it was, is there on the sacred ground kind of thing. But a, a thing that I found was interesting is one of the guides or something like that had mentioned that, that Satine actually came from outside the system or one of the other planets in the system. She was not of Mandalore. She had been elected to that position. And I thought that that was an interesting twist, considering that the pacifists had been in power for a couple 700 years. Speaking of that whole issue, let's see if we can kind of break it down just real fast here. I'm going to pull some information here from my Star Wars Timeline Gold, right? StarWarsFamers.com slash timeline, of course. Uh, in 738 BBY, uh, on Mandalore, a small but growing faction begins urging the Mandalorian leadership to join the Republic. Not only would it quickly make the Mandalorians a major power in the Senate due to their regional might and oversight, but it would also stave off a confrontation with the Republic that the Mandalorians could not win. This minority movement is shouted down as the Mandalorian culture clings to its independence and its warrior ways. The growing advancement of the Mandalorians since the Battle of Rusan under the policies created under Mandalore, the Uniter finally prompts the Republic to take action against the Mandalorians. A Republic task force made of judicial forces and planetary security forces units coordinated by the Jedi Order engages in a preemptive war against the Mandalorians. Key Mandalorian planets, Fennel, Ordo, Concord Dawn, and Mandalore itself, for example, are bombarded from orbit leaving large portions of those worlds as wastelands. The Republic occupies and disarms Mandalorian space, setting up a caretaker government run by members of the failed pro-Republic peace movement. This event becomes known as the Mandalorian Excision. Then 30 years later, in a 708 BBY, the Republic finally ends its decades-long occupation of Mandalorian space, and the now-independent Mandalorian culture emerges changed. The faction that had once urged for Mandalore to join the Republic to maintain peace that was then put in power as the caretaker government after the Mandalorian excision has grown in its following, but it has also grown resentful of the Republic. 
Knowing that conflict with the Republic could only result in further decimation of Mandalorian worlds, this faction renounces its warrior codes and, one would assume, its warrior religion, and embrace pacifism and political neutrality in galactic conflict. They become known as the New Mandalorians. Some of those who refuse to give up their warrior ways either abandon Mandalore to become mercenaries, as had been the case before Mandalore the Uniter called for the return and just after the Battle of Malachor V. Others try to remain on Mandalore, but are exiled to Mandalore's moon, Concordia, where they set up their own local government. Those Mandalorians who cling to warrior ways in the Mandalorian diaspora in the galaxy at large will come to refer to themselves as the true Mandalorians and choose a new Mandalore, or leader, from amongst themselves, even though the planet Mandalore, now ruled from Sundari, will not acknowledge their political authority in the slightest. That all, of course, coming from the Essential Atlas and the Essential Guide to Warfare. So they have worked in how this all happens and made it make somewhat of sense. But at the time, it was absolute chaos. And now, with everything that happened in Season 5, it leads to the question of whether or not things are back to the warrior ways, and that would be an easy way to write it all off. And I think they really have done a good job of extriting themselves, getting themselves out of this. Their exit strategy, while might not have been planned going in, worked out in execution. I, I, I really like that, as of right now, we see... Darth Maul in the hands of Lord Sidious. These are all uh, spoilers, by the way, for the last end of, uh, not the very end of the arc, but the Mandalorian arc. Uh, and we see that Mandalore is in the grips of a civil war with their leadership kind of in check. Uh, the uh, the chairman or the high councilman or whatever his name was, the governor, is now in charge again. I believe he was in charge to a degree under... The Duchess. Like, he was, like, the next one in power, I he believe, a, before. He was the Prime Minister. Almec. So he would basically be the next one in charge anyway if something were to happen to her. So, I mean, it's kind of like there is a power in place, but there is definitely infighting going on. And I like that aspect of where they left Mandalore. We know that Obi-Wan could be coming back any time with more uh, Republic troops. And, and, I mean, I just thought that that was a really good place for them to leave that plot off at. Whether they come back to it or not. I was satisfied with how that ended. And who fills the power void according to The Last Jedi? Minor spoilers for The Last Jedi, so you might mute for about five seconds. Who fills the power void? New Black Sun Vigo Shizor. But that's a whole other issue. Um, now, dealing with the rest of this season, because we do have a handful more episodes to go and we're running shorter on time here, the next episode, of course, was Senate Murders, where we have the plot to murder several senators who are all backing the same type of action that uh, Padme is backing in the Senate. We had no idea at the time that part of the reason why we don't see Anakin, Ahsoka, or Obi-Wan in this episode was because this episode actually takes place after the time jump a couple of years later after the episodes Heroes on Both Sides and Pursuit of Peace. This is actually essentially the third part of a trilogy of episodes where we don't get the other two episodes until the time jump begins in Season 3. Um, but... A decent little sort of a murder tale, but certainly odd in terms of the way it was affected uh, chronologically here. This is also when we start getting the themes, right? I mean, well, I mean, granted, I believe first season we kind of had a, uh, a a diehard theme that wasn't really talked about. But we're starting to see the Alfred Hitchcock and, and those kind of themes starting to come out. The detectives and, and those kind of things. The murder mystery and, and so forth. I thought that was interesting. But yeah, the whole jumping of, I think, is the definite worst case scenario for this season. Like You can watch these episodes and you can enjoy them, but you're never going to get the most out of them in this season. You have to watch them out of order. 
And I don't see any way around that. I did, to me, this is probably going to be the worst season of all the Clone Wars seasons for that reason, because you cannot get that same kind of satisfaction out of the episodes. You can only get the one-on-one or the one arc satisfaction. The, the, the bigger picture just, it's, it's not there. You have to play this throughout the other episodes. That's, that's the very frustrating side of this. And speaking of time jumps, the next one was a time jump, albeit this one more obvious, not something we had to find out what the heck was going on later, but something that was made obvious by the episode itself. We had the episode Cat and Mouse, and Cat and Mouse was unusual in that it is actually a prequel to the movie, but so was The Hidden Enemy. So it is a prequel to The Hidden Enemy, which is a prequel to the Clone Wars film. And uh, it was kind of cool to see how it worked, to see that uh, Bail Organa was somehow involved with what was happening initially on Christophsis and whatnot, um, to see more about uh, Anakin and Admiral Yularen and such before we see the film, to see how everything got set up, how their relationship uh, had progressed up to that point compared to how it progresses by the film and afterwards. Um, what really got me was Admiral Trench, the crazy Spider-Man <laughs> type leader, which again winds up being kind of the same thing as what we see a lot of times in the early seasons of this, which is create a cool villain with a cool character model and look, and then kill him off. Um, but I really did like Admiral Trench. He certainly appeared more creepy and more villainous than uh, Loathsome that we got as the leader on Christophsis in uh, the film and in The Hidden Enemy. I, Trench reminded me of Grand Admiral Thrawn. There was a tactician presence to him that I really enjoyed, and the fact that he was another one and done really upset me because that was a character that I was really looking forward to seeing Anakin and Obi-Wan come up against him more. And so it was like it was like a double slap because not only was he a one and done, but it was it took place before everything. So it was like, well, so much for anything else with him in it. <laughs> you know, and then they I think that was about the same time where they were starting to say, and after this, we're gonna start getting back to a regularly release. So it was like, okay, the option of it being flashback episodes to get more a trench, nope, there goes that. And that I think was really bothersome because he was a character, like I say, with Thrawn, that had that element of, okay, now this guy could be somebody that the separatists could be using to be the next grievous in, in the regards of who the Republic military fear, you know, I mean, a tactician, somebody that's, that's outsmarting them, that's outplanning them and, and all that. I mean, and then the one and done him, it just seemed like such a waste of resources. <laughs> the next episode though, was another of these one-offs, fortunately one that doesn't have much of a time shift. It's that at this point that a chunk of this season gets shifted before the Geonosis arc that happened earlier in the season, if we were watching it on television in real time as it was coming out. And that is Bounty Hunters, which it's a quick little episode. Um, the characters are on Felucia, and we're introduced to Felucians that look nothing like the Felucians that we had just been introduced to, uh, of course, in uh, The Force Unleashed, making them another group of Felucians there. But we also, of course, get the introduction of the uh, the good bounty hunters, so to speak, uh, the ones that we come to think of not as villains the moment we see them, which included Sugi, Imbo, Rumi, Paramita, and Serapos, which are ones, of course, that will show up, uh, well, most of them will be showing up later on in the series, all the way up to the Maul episodes recently. So it was kind of a fluff, just kind of their episode. It puts our characters against Hondo Onaka briefly again, uh, but it does introduce some of these key players that will wind up being char uh, characters that return later in the series. 
Yeah, Embo, he, he turned into a quick uh, favorite of mine and a lot of other fans out there. They really enjoyed him. This is also, again, back to the those taking of classic themes. The 1954 classic Seven Samurai was the inspiration of this one. And, and I, mean, I mean, from here on out, it becomes very obvious that that's kind of what they're doing. I mean, it, I, I want to say, was it Senate Murders was when it was the Alfred Hitchcock one? And then, I mean, from there, it just kind of boom, boom, boom. But by the time we get to the Seven Samurai, after that, we get, what, the Godzilla, then the, then the King Kong. I mean, it really becomes obvious what they're doing in that regard. And I thought it was, it was, it was fun. A lot of people did not like using those themes and, and felt like it was being forced on Star Wars. But, I, again, I point out Star Wars has always been a collection of themes. And so to take anything from any other genre is not devaluing star wars that's respecting where star wars came from in my opinion yeah i think it works i mean as long as it doesn't you know harm the the star wars nature of the story itself but i mean that's the same kind of thing we got with you know death troopers we talked about where it's you know it's a new type of genre so how do you work that into star wars and make it fit and i think they did a fairly good job doing these uh, the next couple of episodes of course do that which are the zillow beast and the zillow beast strikes back the godzilla style episodes with really the only continuity thing that had me scratching my head being the whole, oh, the Dugs rule Mandalore at this point? Or not Mandalore, uh, Malastare at this point? Um, but they do have, you know, some sort of shifting around of, you know, who's leading where, where on Malastare are they compared to where other stuff we've seen on Malastare happens to be. Um, so we wind up with sort of this crazy monster movie type thing where the monster is loose on Coruscant. I'm still waiting for us to eventually find out if there's anything that comes out of the end of the episodes where Palpatine wants the Zillow Beast and wants to be able to use him for experimentation, because so far we haven't seen anything come out of that. That we know of. I mean, we could find out that this technology that you've been seeing all this time was actually modified off of the Zillow Beast, reverse engineered. I mean, they can always give you something like that where, oh, it's been in our face the entire time. With the Silo Beast Strikes Back, I, I love the King Kong feel of it, how you know they brought him onto Coruscant. They were showing him off, kind of trying to figure out what's going on with the armor and all that. And the fact that they started doing these themes and they're working, I really enjoy it. So it's one of those things where, you know, you, you just take it and you run with what they give you. And, of course, the last storyline here is the other one that causes people to go, wait, what? In some cases, uh, but it was cool to see, which is Daniel Logan coming into the Clone Wars as Boba Fett in the three-part Death Trap, R2 Come Home, and Lethal Trackdown storyline here, where we find out that uh, Aura Singh had a previous relationship with Hondo Onaga, with one of the greatest lines of, uh, uh, he's not mine, is he, you know, when it comes to uh, Boba Fett. We see Boba Fett <laughs> infiltrating a bunch of clone cadets, um, which is kind of cool, or I guess young clone trainees, which is kind of cool. See him on his mission to get revenge on Mace Windu. He is working with Aura Singh, which is something we see in the books, though it's done in a very different way here. Uh, we see Slave One being used, which we eventually wind up seeing actually get crashed and damaged, only to return finally in Season 5. Uh, and we get uh, Boba Fett locked up so that he can show up again in prison in Season, uh, I believe it was 4, that he'll wind up showing up there before he winds up being uh, rescued. Really, the only two things that stood out to me in this episode, or this arc, which I thought was pretty cool, you know, with the crashing of the Republic cruiser and whatnot, um, was the fact that we have to just assume that there must have been a spare helmet for Django, because in the EU, Boba Fett for a while uses Django's equipment, especially his helmet, and the helmet that we see in these episodes gets used as a booby trap that then explodes. So there must have been a spare, and you would figure he wouldn't want to blow up his daddy's actual helmet, so that kind of makes sense. And 
Uh, we have the weird thing in R2 Come Home, two weird things, really, where R2 manages to make it back and forth from uh, Vancor, I believe it is, to Coruscant in record time and gets back in record time, almost instantaneous. One of the biggest time fudges in travel, in hyperspace travel, that we see in this series. Uh, and we have the fact that it's called R2 Come Home, which doesn't seem to make a lot of sense with the concept of the evidence. It's not R2 Come Home. If anything, it's R2 Go Home, go back to Coruscant and get help, or R2 Come Back with help. R2 Come Home makes it sound as though Anakin is the one on Coruscant, R2 is the one out there somewhere else, and he's trying to get R2 to come back to Coruscant. Uh, the name of the episode made no sense to me at all. And of course, Lethal Trackdown is not to be confused with the Republic storyline, Trackdown minus the Lethal. Yeah, you know, the, the little continuity flubs that came along, they were a little concerning, but nothing at this point that I was going to freak out over. I mean, I think at this point we've survived Ryloth, we've survived Mandalore, you know, the, the helmet and stuff. Like, heck, you've already given me great ideas for retcons there. So it, it, I thought it was cool, you know, watching the cruiser crash, watching Mace and how he was talking about things, watching the 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 hate in Daniel Logan. And I, I got to say right there, them bringing in Daniel Logan to, to voice the character again, that's something that, that I wish they would do more often. You know, we were talking last season about how Jar Jar Binks just didn't sound right because they didn't get the same actor. I've always wondered why, when these actors are, are available and willing to do the works, why they don't continue to have the same people voice the characters. That's always been something that's always perplexed me. But getting him to come back and actually voice Boba Fett, I thought that was awesome. So, you know, th there's been rumors, too, that if they ever do a live action show, you know, that they'd get him to do it. And I always thought that'd be cool. You know, hey, he's been willing. He's been a great, great actor, you know, great for the fan community. So seeing him come back in was fun. You know, I mean, watching his Twitter feed and stuff like that as he he was talking about the new stuff he was doing and watching the uh, slave one crash. I remember people freaking out. And then, you know, we saw previews for the next season and we saw that Hondo who was happens to be kind of like the hot rod enthusiast is bringing the old fire spray back to uh, mint condition. And I thought that was a awesome way of doing that, of wrecking the ship and yet having it being restored by someone who cared. And, you know, it gets back to that whole aspect of how it plays together. Uh, I remember in the Boba Fett books, the kid books, you know, how he was, he had that data pad that had his father's uh, instructions and all that, and how he was the only one that knew Darth Tyrannus's name, and he was going to tell the Republic, and in the end, he gets up to Palpatine, and Palpatine kind of buys his silence. I, I, I just, I, I'm curious to see how, by the time the Clone Wars is all said and done, how they're going to find ways to to work those together. You know, because Boba Fett's been a character that, that, They've had so many versions of him that that would not work together, and yet they have found time and time again ways to retcon and and make the character work with all the various incarnations. So them doing that has left me with an abundance of faith, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I'm very interested to see where they go with Boba Fett, seeing as how we saw him again in last season's four-part finale, uh, where he actually has that helmet that he gets in the most recent Clone Wars magazine uh comic strip where he gets that ma old Mandalorian helmet that looks a little different. Um, we really haven't seen him show up, though, within the span of Season 5, so I'm curious where they're going to go with him, assuming that Season 6 does wind up existing and does wind up being something that uh, we get in the near future. They recently had their premiere of the finale uh, as, as a whole, as a, almost like a movie 
version of it in which they said, yeah, we still haven't announced anything about what's going to happen with season six. Will there be one? Where will it be? How will it be distributed, et cetera, et cetera? So I guess we just have to wait and see on that one. Yeah, in fact, their uh, Save the Clone Wars campaigns are going on right now, which is a as a signer of the petition of 2000 to preserve the EU's continuity, I find it kind of ironic that now the Clone Wars fans are finding themselves in that same spot. You know, it's, as I said, continuity has been a, a shifty place. Canon is liquid and the George Lucas effect is to hell with canon. So I'm very curious to see where Disney is going to go with this now that they're playing George Lucas's role. And remember, you can find our show at www.starwarsreport.com, as well as on our Facebook page, iTunes, Zune, and airing on Middle Earth Network Radio. If you like our show, be sure to drop us a review on iTunes or the Zune Marketplace, or just fire us off an email. You can email us at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. And be sure to interact with us on Facebook and Twitter at swbeyondfilms. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Whistler and, yes, yes, and Mark. And Nathan. Saying, thanks for listening and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds. That they'll never shift anything again like they did with this season and revival. Or that the Clone Wars is going to continue on Cartoon Network for season six. If you like our shirt, if you like our shirt, you're a bit of 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 a b